Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephanie Fay, and I'll be sharing insights into how human brain architecture and biology are influenced by our unconscious fears and social behaviors. I'll also give you science-based strategies on how to skyrocket the brain's learning potential by focusing on the power of mindset, relationship, and psychological safety. Thanks for listening. This is episode five of the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. Thanks for joining me. In this episode, we're going to explore some new understandings we have about human behavior. And what we're going to do with this is move away from our heavy focus on the mind and the brain and these psychology-based ideas about emotions and social behaviors. And we're going to move back into the body and the senses as sources of intelligence for this. We're also going to look at motor movements and the importance of these movements that we have in order to have social communication and to regulate ourselves, as well as how issues with vagal tone that can come from developmental issues as well as environmental issues, but issues with this vagal tone that we'll go into can contribute not only to challenges in social behavior, but also digestive issues, other challenges with our internal organs. And then lastly, we're going to look at what we can do with these new understandings. And part of that's going to come from having a better understanding of the difference between emotions and feelings, which are significantly different. And the better we get at understanding the difference between feelings and emotions, the better we can get at helping our own ability to self-regulate and also teach and show others how to have more control over their social behaviors and their internal state. So those are the three key things that we're going to look at in this episode. So let's get right into our new understanding of human behavior coming from something called the embodied cognition movement. So I'm going to pull from a book by Gregory Hickok, and it's called The Myth of the Mirror Neurons. And this is also pulling from Antonio Damasio's latest book, The Strange Order of Things, as well as Bessel van der Kirk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, and of course, Stephen Porges' Polyvagal Theory various research papers on that. So the first thing to think about is that we've gone through many different movements in terms of trying to describe and explain human behavior. And one of those came in the 1900s, in the first few decades of that, where we were pretty influenced by Watson and Skinner and their behaviorist movement. And in that movement, they really put a huge amount of importance on the environment and basically almost promoted the idea that the environment, which was the stimulus, created a response and created behavior in animals and and people, that they were basically empty. And until the environment or the stimulus was was given uh, to the animal or person, that that was the where the behavior came from. It came from the environment. And what we saw from that was that it going back to episode two, where I mentioned that the stimulus response model um, is a very outdated view of humans and really most organisms' behavior because it doesn't acknowledge the existing physiology of that organism, also the temporary physiological state, and and the different neural and physical architecture that exists. So something that happened in response to that behaviorist movement was what ended up being called the cognitive revolution or the information processing revolution. And there is some confusion about that um, because the first person that really coined the term cognitive for this cognitive movement was someone named Ulrich Neisser. And he, he actually put a huge amount of emphasis on the senses, the visual and auditory senses, and a small amount of focus on the mental processing power of the mind. Even in his book, he had four chapters, I think, on visual, four chapters on auditory, and one chapter on the mental processing. But nevertheless, this cognitive information processing revolution starts to take place. Chomsky was part of that. And how he was responding to Skinner and this behaviorist movement was he was basically saying, we are way more complex than to say that 
an environment or stimulus can just be basically injected or triggered, and that will definitely create a certain behavior or response. There is much more going on. And so that led to a deeper understanding and recognition that the brain is processing a lot of this, that the input that's coming in isn't copied immediately. It's There is a change that happens in the brain. It processes, it computes, and that leads to the behavior. So that was an important response to the behaviorist movement. But what it didn't recognize was the importance of the senses and the body. And so there are sensory and motor system scientists that have always known this, but the senses and and the different, the cells in our body, they all have intelligence and they all have an ability to process information also. So there was even a paper, I believe it was in 2010, in the journal called Neuron, And the title was, The Eye is Smarter Than Scientists Believe. Neural computations in circuits of the retina happen. And so what this paper said was that the eye isn't just this simple pre-filter of visual stimulus, but it actually solves diverse sets of specific tasks and provides results that get explicitly directed downstream to, to the brain. So what they were saying in that paper is that the retina, that different cells are actually processing, they're computing information. The the output from these cells is not a direct copy from the input. Something happens in the middle of that. So there's a processing or a computing that's happening. And Antonio DiMaggio also talks about that, that the senses are gatekeepers to what actually gets into the brain. The signals that come to the brain aren't just exact replicas of what's outside. There's a processing that happens through our senses and through our body. We see that also, I'll give you two other examples of this, is sometimes when you read in a scientific paper, I'll see things like the amygdala responds to a smiling or angry face. And what's so interesting about that is the amygdala is not on the outside of our body. The amygdala is receiving signals from the senses. So it's actually ignoring the importance of these our visual senses, the sensory, you know, different systems that are coming in and how those might actually be altering the information, the signals that even reach our brain. And a a huge example of that, and I'm going to talk way more about the importance of sound and hearing and all that in another episode, but even just sound waves and acoustic energy is not being without any kind of filtering, just entering our ear, hitting our eardrum and then going to our brain there is this motor movement of these middle ear muscles that have their own processing. There is a type of, in a very casual sense, decision-making. There's some type of filtering that's happening from our middle ear muscles that will actually change the quality and amplitude and the different frequencies and acoustic energy that's hitting our eardrum. So it's not just that because I even notice in Steven Pinker's new book, Enlightenment Now, he talks about the ear and he talks about how you know auditory information, acoustic energy gets channeled into the ear, into the middle ear, hits the eardrum, and then gets changed into different, different energy that gets sent to our brain. But what I noticed in a lot of different hearing and sound research papers is people are, are not even acknowledging that there might actually be some other processing that's happened even before some of the sound hits the eardrum. And that actually changes the signals. It changes what we actually hear. So I've already touched on that a couple of times in previous episodes, how important these middle ear muscles are in terms of they actually alter the sounds that hit our the neural receptors that go to our brain. So we none of us actually hear the same way. The same sound will not be received by our brain two human brains in exactly the same way. Our senses, as Antonio DiMaggio says, our senses are the gatekeepers. They are altering these signals that reach our brain. So this is just important for us to think about because it acknowledges that what I was mentioning in episode two, the stimulus organism response model, that there's stimulus coming in to each organism, each human or animal, but what we have going on inside of us and the different threshold levels of our senses, they're going to alter how we actually perceive our environment. So we, none of us are actually um, receiving in the same way the same messages from our environment. We are all experiencing, in quote, reality differently from each other. And that's important for us to think about too, because that means that what we think of as, oh, that stimulus is making me feel this way, 
it will feel very different for another person because they're literally not receiving the same signals as we are because these, their senses are controlling how those get received by their brain. So that's one important thing to think about. The other important piece that our understanding of the vagus nerve, why it's so important, is that we are now recognizing that there are sensory and motor fibers in this vagus nerve. And what's so important about that, I'm going to go more into the vagus nerve in a second, but first just the sensory motor piece. So first of all, the autonomic nervous system is the part of our nervous system that regulates unconsciously or subconsciously a lot of our different regulatory states. So, you know, heart rate and digestive things and things like that. But the autonomic nervous system, and it's divided basically into three. So originally it was just two. It was the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, which was basically seen as the sympathetic is the fight flight or the very quick to respond. And the parasympathetic is the rest and digest system or the feed and breed system. But we also see now that there's a third subsystem, which they call the enteric nervous system. And that's more located basically in the gut. And they see that as the second brain. It's in the gastrointestinal systems and it kind of detects different things that are going on there. There's a large number of neurons in that area. Actually, this the second highest number of neurons after the brain is in the in that area, the enteric nervous system. So anyway, there's these three systems. But the how the autonomic nervous system has been presented for quite a while and is still being presented even in current textbooks is that it's exclusively a motor fiber system. And what that means is that's basically saying that the only thing the autonomic nervous system does is it's receiving signals from the brain to act on the organs. So motor fibers are fibers that are leaving the brainstem and going to different organs in this example, going to the different visceral organs. So that can include the, the heart, the pancreas, the adrenal glands, the digestive tract, liver, all those things. So by saying that it's a motor fiber system, they're basically saying that it is just changing or controlling these organs. What this ignores is that there's a large number of sensory fibers. So compared to motor fibers, which another word is efferent, E-F-F-E-R-E-N-T, motor fibers are the ones that basically take signals from the brain to control the organs. But afferent fibers or sensory fibers are taking signals from the internal organs and sending those signals to the brain. So those are sensory. And what we find in the vagus nerve, which going back to previous episodes, I'll do a quick review, is that it's the 10th cranial nerve. And it's this huge nerve that controls many, many things. And it's basically a conduit of motor and sensory fibers. And what we see in this vagus nerve is that 80% of the fibers are sensory and 20% are motor. 80% of the fibers in this vagus nerve are getting signals from the organs and those signals are being sent to the brainstem and only 20% are motor. So 20% are coming from the brain and, and controlling the organs. But the other piece of this presenting the autonomic nervous system as only motor fiber system is it's completely ignoring the entire model of the autonomic nervous system, which is that it is a feedback system, meaning that in order for us to have homeostasis, homeostasis is just the balancing of our systems. It's not a steady state. It's constantly dynamically altering different things in our systems in order to adapt to each challenge and each environmental context. In order to have homeostasis, there needs to be a feedback. In order to keep this homeostatic you know, regulation, you can't just have the exact same thing happening over and over again, because that means whatever me, this organism, I'm not actually responding to anything that's changing in my environment. It would mean that the environment is exactly the same all the time and no changes ever happen which obviously is not the case. So to dynamically change with challenges, it has to be a feedback system, meaning that signals need to come from my senses. They need to go 
up into the brain. The brain needs to process and evaluate that and then said send signals back. It can't just be this one-way communication system. That doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> so there's four components to a feedback system. And I'm just going to bring these up because understanding this is going to help us understand how much intelligence our body has, how much intelligence is in our senses, in our internal organs. And this is a bi-directional communication system. And so the more we understand this, the more we can start um, highlighting the importance of the sensations that happen in our body. And that is a concept called interoception, which is getting more familiar with the physiological sensations that are happening inside our body, which will give us more ability to deliberately achieve regulation, achieve homeostasis, because we're more in tune with the sensations in our body instead of only paying attention to the mental stuff that's happening in our brain. I'm going to get to that in a later section. So let me just go over. There's four components to the autonomic nervous system feedback system. These four components are the first is that there needs to be sensors in the internal organs to evaluate internal conditions. So they need to know things like different chemical levels and just all the stuff that's happening. Second, there needs to be sensory pathways that send this information from the organs to the brain. Third, there needs to be brain structures that interpret this sensory information and then regulate the organs in response to these ever-changing conditions. Constantly changing conditions has to be very adaptive. And then fourth, there has to be motor pathways from the brain going to the organs for the information and to make changes as needed. So there has to be those four, the sensors in the organs, sensory pathways from the organs to the brain, brain structures to interpret and evaluate this, and then send signals back to the organs, and then the motor pathways to carry that information back to the organs. So it's this bi-directional. And to me, that sounds like common sense, but interestingly, it just seems to be missing from a lot of the literature, and in particular, from the autonomic nervous system literature that has been presented over the years. More of the updated stuff is now acknowledging this. So that's important because, just like I was saying, we need to get more familiar with these sensations. And this just brings us to the difference between feelings and emotions that I was kind of getting at previously to this. So the difference between feelings and emotions, feelings are the physiological sensation of these changes that are happening in our body in order to maintain homeostasis. So there are physiological sensations coming from those sensors in our internal organs, and that's being fed up to the brain. That Those are feelings, the, sense, the physiological sensations of these changes happening inside our body. Emotions are the labels we use, the mental labels that we are using as an attempt to describe these changes, to describe the physiological sensations that we have. But our brain wasn't actually developed or built in order to describe these internal sensations that our language centers and our ability to use these words and these labeling occurred to describe our outside environment, the external environment. It was used to communicate from one person to the other about stuff that was happening. And the centers are, are very different from the centers that are related to these physiological sensations, the internal organ information coming up to our brain stem. So it's not this immediate processing that could happen where, okay, sensors in our internal organs, those sensors are going up to our brain stem. It is not directly related to the language center. So our ability to describe our physiological sensations is going to require a lot of different translation and a lot of different stuff that's going to happen before it even makes sense. So we even intuitively know this in terms of how we use language. When you see little children starting to speak, they're not talking about abstract things and they're not talking about these narratives that are happening. We tend to use language with children intuitively to describe the outside world first. And most teachers know that we're not, we don't really introduce abstract concepts that you can't use the five senses to, to observe when you're teaching language, you need to start with those basics. And in that sense too, that's really what language was for. We can get better at describing these physiological sensations, but it takes practice. It's not an immediate thing, which is the other reason why we would say, use your words or 
talk about your feelings with children. We're trying to get them to, to get better at labeling these physiological sensations. But where we get confused is that we start using the words feelings and emotions to mean the same thing, and they don't. Emotions are that mental label, the narrative that we've kind of attached, that we are, our brain is attempting to describe and label and categorize these sensations that we're feeling, but it's not an immediate or natural process. So the feelings, the physiological sensations, that's something that only we can get familiar with in terms of feeling it, sensing it. And that, that is that idea of interoception, becoming more aware of the actual sensations that are happening before it goes to the labeling. And this is also where this idea of mindfulness comes from, just noticing those sensations, that awareness. And that actually activates more of these midline structures in our brain, including the medial prefrontal cortex, that helps us be more observant of more of these sensations, rather than going into the labeling and the narratives already. And why this is important is that when we are just noticing the feelings, the actual sensations, we are staying more in the present moment, rather than when we start to go right into trying to get the words and the description and the labels, we can get lost very easily into scripts that are happening and also future projections of why this is a problem and also cause effect inferences of where this all comes from, which can start creating lots of stories. And a lot of those stories are going to be based on different experiences. Whereas noticing more of the just the sensations is bringing us back into the present. And something we know from trauma therapy is that Many updated and current people that are really understanding this embodied cognition model, they are seeing that talk therapy is not particularly effective, particularly for people who have suffered trauma or a lot of adverse circumstances, because the areas of the brain related to all the physiological sensations that happen during our experiences, they're not necessarily connected. And talking about stuff that happened in the past often just actually gets them more aroused and deeper and deeper into a narrative that they keep repeating rather than bringing them back into the present moment. And many trauma therapists and therapies and new updated psychotherapies are helping people get back into the present moment because that's where we can actually affect change. The only way we can create regulation and use our mind our cortex and our, you know, our mental processing to actually execute change on our internal state is if we are in the present moment. If we're projecting into the future, we can't do anything about our physiological state in the future, only our state now. So coming back into present moment requires a better ability to sense the feelings, this physiological sensations that are occurring from these sensors in our internal organs that are getting sent up to our the different brain centers, rather than going into labeling, categorizing, and trying to use verbal language. We're very, very dependent on words and language. And that doesn't always, in these cases, doesn't always help us when we're trying to get back into sensing what our body is doing and coming back into that present moment. So that is just the first section on getting more into this embodied cognition model where we are recognizing the feedback system, the sensory motor feedback system of our autonomic nervous system, meaning that the sensations in our internal organs, that those signals are being sent to our brain and there are actual different brain centers that take some of those messages and send them to different areas of our brain, including the forebrain and including different control components of the cortex and even motor fibers that have to do with our face and head. We're going to get into that in a second. But just understanding that we are getting information from our internal organs and that's, that is being received by the brain. And then that's, those signals are getting processed and going back to regulating our internal state. So it's important for us to understand that there, there is this communication happening because that will help us understand that getting in touch with our feelings, which is physiological state, the sensations of physiological changes in our body, not emotions, that those are the verbal labeling categories. Getting in touch with that and tuning into that is very, very helpful and gives, can give us more cortical control over our homeostasis, over our regulation. 
So the next section is about how important our vagus nerve is. And the overall theme really of this episode is let's get to know the vagus nerve and the autonomic nervous system because it is so incredibly important and I don't think enough people know about it and the extraordinary role it plays not only in helping regulate our autonomic systems like our digestion and our heart rate, but also that this vagus nerve plays a role in our social communication and our social behaviors. So in case you're wondering, you know, how important this vagus nerve is, let me just list a few of the things that it is related to, that it directs. The heart, laryngeal and pharyngeal muscles, which is that ability to create complex vocalization and the modulations, the variability in our voice to let people know about our intentions and internal state. The bronchi, the esophagus, the stomach, abdominal blood vessels, liver and bile duct, pancreas, adrenal glands, small and large intestines. So this vagus nerve is helping us to do things. The, it's, it is the parasymp- part of this parasympathetic nervous system. So it's the rest and digest, helps enhance digestion. It calms our, our nerves. It dilates blood vessels to our gastrointestinal tract which helps stimulate digestive activity. It constricts the bronchioles when we don't need so much oxygen. So actually kind of that's where it lowers, you know, heart rate and blood pressure. It has the break on our heart. So it actually controls the variability, meaning that if if our heart didn't have this break, this vagal break, then it would just be, we would have very, very high heart rate. But the vagus nerve, this vagal tone on our heart breaks the heart. It slows it down when we don't need all of that oxygen. And it also lets go when we do need to have a lot of oxygen. So what this allowed mammals to do, and this is particularly in mammal system, the mammalian vagal system, it allowed us to engage or disengage according to, you know, if things are safe or if they're not, without having to involve a whole bunch of stuff with our adrenal glands, which is very, very expensive and very resource expensive for, for our bodies. So we, we do occasionally still go into that, but this vagal tone allowed us to kind of quickly mobilize if needed. So increase, you know, our heart rate and all the stuff that's, that's going to flow to that by, by letting go of the break. But then having high vagal tone means that we have a lot of variability in our heart rate. So it'll put the brakes on when we're feeling calm. Then when it senses something, it'll let go of the brake and our heart rate will go up. So we know that someone has very good vagal tone if there's huge peaks and valleys in their heart rate. The shallower those are, the less tone there is on this vagal brake. So it's actually not such a good thing to have a very steady heart rate. There should be these peaks and valleys, these acceleration and deceleration means that the the brake is working well because without the brake, it would just be pretty high and it would just be the steady state. So let's just compare that, what the, the vagus does for our parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest part of our nervous system to the sympathetic, which now the difference between parasympathetic and sympathetic is basically where the these afferent nerves, where their origins are on the, the brain and spinal cord. So the parasympathetic, those afferent fibers are they have their origin in the cranial nerve and the the sacral regions of the spinal cord, which is quite low down in the spinal cord. Whereas the sympathetic nervous system, those fibers are from the thoracic and lumbar. So those are the kind of sandwiched between the cranial and sacral. And so though that controls the, the sympathetic nervous system. So those fibers are coming from those areas of the spinal cord and they are, do things very differently than the parasympathetic. So they inhibit digestion. So when sympathetic system is activated, we are not digesting and we're not resting. It's going to take blood flow away from the gastrointestinal tract and skin, and it's going to put it towards the skeletal muscles and the lungs so that it can increase, you know, how much we breathe. So it actually will increase blood flow to skeletal muscles by as much as 1,200%, so 1,200% to the skeletal muscles. It dilates the bronchioles so that we have more oxygen exchange. It increases the heart rate, dilates the pupils to allow more light, 
and constricts intestinal tracts. So if the sympathetic nervous system is being activated, what you can see right there is that digestion and, you know, that kind of attention for the internal organs and the regulation of those internal organs, the particularly the digestive system, is not going to happen. So what we can already start to see is that if vagal tone is not working properly, or if we're in a constant state of stress, then we are very likely going to have heart and digestive problems because the heart is going to be pumped. There's going to be so much blood flow to, to that. And the bronchioles are going to be dilated a lot, but also the digestional system is not going to be getting a lot of blood flow. So in order to improve our digestion and the health of our internal organs, we need to allow for this vagus nerve to do its thing. Because as soon as that vagus nerve, the myelinated vagus nerve is activated, it's going to put the brakes on the heart and that will allow for more of the blood flow to go to the digestive organs. So that's one piece of the vagus nerve. That's how incredibly important this vagus nerve is and how important the tone of it is. And in a, the next section, we're going to talk about why that can go wrong in some people, why it's not working and what the challenges are. But first, so we're talking about how important that is for all of those internal organs, but the other piece, and this is the interesting thing that a lot of literature you see on the vagus nerve, it doesn't even mention this part, that the vagus nerve, this 10th cranial nerve also has motor fibers going to the face and head. Also the heart, you know, the motor fibers are, are needed to to control and regulate the heart, but these fibers are also going to the face and head and the middle ear muscles. So like I already mentioned, there's about six other features in, in terms of this, in terms of how much the vagus nerve plays a role. So it controls eyelid opening. It controls the middle ear muscles. And like I mentioned in another episode, a previous one, I think episode three, when our eyelids open, it mechanically tenses the middle ear muscle. And I'm going to go deeper into the middle ear muscle in an upcoming episode. But again, it just, what the middle ear muscle does is it attenuates the low frequencies. So it allows us to basically extract the human voice frequency band from background sound. So that's the other piece of this vagus nerve. It controls our, the, particularly the striate muscles of our face, which is particularly in the orbital area for our eyes. It also controls chewing, mastication, head turning, and where our eye gaze goes. But what's interesting about this connection that we don't see in a lot of the literature is that those facial muscles and throat muscles, the you know, the vocalization, basically the the voice, the vocalizing, the listening, and the facial expression, those systems are connected to lower motor neurons, which communicate directly with inhibitory systems of the nervous system, so lowering the heart rate. And the reason why that's so important is what, what we're basically seeing from this is that these movements of our face and listening, the, the movements in our ear, facial expression, the way we speak actually is connected to how we regulate our organs. So... <laughs> Our social communication system in our face and head is part of our nervous system. It's actually part of what will regulate our internal organs. I think that's a huge thing to think about, that we have this system that is directly connecting what we do with our face, what we do with our ears when we listen, and what we do with our voice towards others, and how that regulates our system. And also how our system and the, the senses that are coming from our internal organs is also going to possibly limit what we do with our face and head and voice and eye gaze. So we are really starting to understand how important this vagus nerve is and vagal tone, and that it's involved not only in the autonomic nervous system in the sense that it regulates digestion and heart and, and heart rate variability, but that it also is directly linked to our social behaviors and social communication abilities. Okay, so what do we do with all of this information about the vagus nerve and how does it help us? 
Well, one of the first things we need to do is understand that some people are going to have deficits in vagal tone. There's going to be problems with the vagal system. And some of these problems are going to come from embryonic development. So the myelinated vagus nerve, the the most recent circuit that has to do with that social communication system, that gets developed last in the womb. So one issue can be with people who were are born premature, and I believe it's around 26 weeks or before that, there may be issues with the myelination of that, the cranial nerve that has to do with the social engagement system. So there might be problems with uh, chewing and eye gaze, facial expression. We may also see some of those things happening with different developmental issues that also happen in the womb, such as what we see in the autism spectrum. So that we are seeing some possibility of links with, like I've mentioned in other episodes, virus or bacterial infections, and there may be other things that have to do with the immune system. But that's another area where we see challenges with vagal tone. And what that means is that there's going to be flat facial expression, flat vocalization. There's not going to be a lot of prosody to the voice. You're not going to be able to tell someone's emotions through their voice. They're going to have difficulty tensing the middle ears. They'll have very a lot of difficulty focusing on human voice. There will be also possibly heart, cardiac issues, and digestive issues. And another interesting thing with the vagus nerve that we see with people on the spectrum is that with rocking behaviors, there are baroreceptors also related to the vagus nerve, and it has to do with the head in, in its relation to the heart, its position in relation to the heart. And so rocking activates part of that, and that's within the vagus nerve. And so it is something to that someone is using to self-regulate when vagal tone isn't very strong, when the vagal circuit isn't working proper, properly, a person might be rocking in order to activate that vagal system through the, the baroreceptors. So that's one area where we can see some challenges with the vagal tone. And then the other is going to be coming from people who have had trauma or also developmental trauma, recurring adversity and stress in their environment. If they are lacking social engagement, people who have had a lot of deprivation of caregiving and and social communication, social engagement, they are going to have some issues with that because they have not been able to exercise that vagal tone. And just toxic stress and adversity in general is going to, like I've mentioned in other episodes, it's going to continuously, for example, have the middle ear muscles open and will activate different systems that are going to keep the mainly the sympathetic system uh, engaged, which means that no blood flow is really going to be going to the digestive system. So there's going to be health issues there. And also because the vagal tone isn't being strengthened, people coming from these different environments are also going to have problems with facial expression, expressing themselves through their voice, their emotions, being able to listen, and even have eye gaze, have eye contact. So there's both the kind of developmental issues that can cause problems with vagal tone and also environmental contexts can can cause issues with vagal tone. And it's just pretty clear that the vagal tone is just so incredibly important to us as humans. It's one of the most evolved neural circuits that we have. So it's important for us to really understand it. So just to summarize that, the first thing to understand is that people are going to have different vagal tone. They're going to have different levels of vagal tone. And it's going to come from many different factors, some of them being developmental, some of them being the person's environment. So if someone is raised in a with a lot of caregiving, a lot of social engagement, very little adversity, but also optimal embryo development and all of that stuff, they're going to have high levels of this vagal tone. But if we don't, and even people who do have all of those things in place may still have issues with vagal tone because there is so much different forms of stress that are going on, some of them being this metaphorical stress that I've mentioned a few times. And all of that's going to keep these defensive mobilization systems activated, which is going to mean that we're not 
honing this vagus nerve very often. So the second thing we can do is have a better understanding of the difference between emotions and feelings, because the more we get in touch with the feelings that we have, which is the sense, the physiological sensations coming from our organs and those signals getting sent up, the better we get at differentiating between the two, the better we get at actually tuning into our internal state. That will help us start to recognize our own signature patterns of the the different messages that are being sent, whether we're in a mobilized state or whether we are in a more myelinated vagus nerve state, (laughs) state condition. So if we're a teacher or even any person, I think the one thing we can start to do is to first have practices where we get in touch with these physiological sensations, but also to start talking more, at least in the, in the first stages, to start talking more about the sensations we feel and to do this from a more objective standpoint. And we've actually seen from different research that when they have different uh, groups that go in, so they, they did a few studies on this and they measured just how the brain was interpreting and processing pain. They had two different groups go in. One had, and they both were subjected to the same pain. It was like a very hot sensation on their fingers. And one group was trained in just speaking very objectively about the physiological sensations, like where was it behind which finger? Is it more of a dull throb or is it a prickly sensation to talk about it in that way? Whereas the other group wasn't given any of that kind of instruction. And what they found was a difference between two things, how the brain was responding to the pain. So the group that was talking and talking about it in a very objective way. They had the only areas of the brain that were lighting up were the ones related to physiological pain. Whereas the other group that didn't get any of that instruction, the emotion centers were lighting up quite a bit in the brain. And when they came out of the experiment, the group that had just talked about it in a very objective way about the physiological sensations, they rated their actual experience of the pain as being much lower on a scale of one to 10, than the other group who rated the pain as being very high and their emotion centers were also highly activated. So it makes a difference in how we perceive our experiences and and also pain. Let me give you one other example from when I was a school counselor. So I worked on this with a boy who I'll call Alex, and he was getting in fights a lot and was getting suspended regularly from school for getting in fights and pushing kids. And he had particular problems with a few girls in his class. And so we went through a process of starting to have more of this interoception, this awareness of the physiological sensations in our body. And so when we first started going through this, I would say, okay, so why are you pushing the kids? And he would say, because I get really mad. And so I would ask him, so what does it feel like when you get mad? And he couldn't tell me. He said, I just, I just get mad. I just get really angry and I want to push them. And so I had to, through my own practice, start getting better and better at understanding the physiological sensations I was feeling when I had different emotions. So I was becoming more aware of that. I was then able to talk to him and I was able to actually bring up stuff for me in that moment that would make me upset or frustrated and tell him exactly where I was feeling it in my body. And I would, you know, say it was prickling in my fingers. I was feeling kind of tight in my throat. And as I kept doing this, he would just observe me doing this. And eventually after several sessions, he had a breakthrough and he noticed that his fist was clenching when he started talking and thinking about the things that were making him upset. And he noticed a hot sensation in his chest. And he said to me that day, Miss Stephanie, I have an indicator now. I had never used that word. He came up with that, which was really cool. I have an indicator now of when I'm getting upset. And the next day he came up to me after school and he said, guess what? The girls in my class were bugging me and I was feeling really, really frustrated and angry. But then I looked down and I saw my fist clench and I knew that was my signal. That was my indicator. I was getting mad. So I wanted to use my prefrontal cortex. So I walked away and said, I didn't want to fight that day. And that was a a huge breakthrough for him. And from that point, he was not getting suspended. He was not getting into fights. He had an indicator. There was a little bit more to that story too, which was that his mom also went into anger management classes because she actually saw him 
finally having more control and realized that it was possible to control his anger. And he was actually being an inspiration to her for it. He was describing some of this to her. So she ended up going into anger management. And that was, you know, we saw an even higher level of behavior changes in him once she started going to that. So that's this this idea of just getting more in tune with these physiological sensations, this interoception. I'm going to include something from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, PNAS.org. And it's these body heat maps. And they did a study of people talking about where they felt heat and where they felt different sensations in their body according to different emotions. And even though I, I don't know if it's the absolute most rigorous research, but it, they did it across quite a few different cultures. And they found similar patterns for people depending on the emotions they felt. And interestingly, when you look at this uh, diagram, you'll see that the heat map for anger, you see a lot of blood flow and heat in the fists and in the chest and also in the facial area, which makes sense because that's where the blood flow is going to the skeletal muscles. And you'll also see that in the depressed image that is very cold all over. And that would also make sense in terms of this vagus nerve because it's pulling blood flow away from everything and going into that parasympathetic mode, but the one where it's actually going into our most ancient system, which is the shutting down mode. And actually, if you look at every image on that body heat map, is that every single emotion is other than depression. There is still some type of blood flow or heat in the facial area. And that would very much correlate with what we see from the social engagement system, that we are in every emotion, we are activating something in our facial muscles. There's blood flow going to our facial muscles to indicate our internal state. Whereas the more defensive mobilized state, such as the anger one, has some of that blood flow going to like the fists and the skeletal muscles. So it's an interesting map to look at. I didn't have it at the time I was talking with Alex, but I think it could be a helpful diagram to show people just to show that People do, when they are in tune with those sensations, there does seem to be some patterns that happen. But again, everyone feels things differently. And how they're going to perceive different things is going to be different. And they're each going to have their own signature pattern to that. That's why it's important for point number three, which I was going to say in terms of what we can do about this, is for us to take more time to deliberately go into sensing those those internal physiological sensations. But just as importantly, to take time to almost feel yourself putting a vagal break on your heart. And so what that means is taking that time to be quiet in a day and to have some control over your exhalations, which will allow for that vagus nerve to put some of the breaks on your heart. And what that's going to do is it's going to keep the sympathetic nervous system from being activated, which means that it will allow for more of that blood flow to go to your digestive system and some of your internal organs in order to restore them and restore health to them. And it's actually going to pull sensations and awareness away from your extremities and you're going to go deeper into your internal organs. And what I would say that what meditation does is it's it's really allowing us to have more deliberate control over that vagal tone. And to use this vagal tone, that vagal break on the heart to, you know, lower the the defensive systems from coming online to help restore organs. But interestingly, also what seems to happen, at least for me, and I've heard it from other people, and we also have the image of the smiling Buddha, is that as you do this, the muscles in the face are, are online, but you're not using it to send out signals or information to anybody else. But the eyes actually start to have a soft softness to them, a soft smile to them. And what's also happening during meditation is our middle ear muscles are also tensing. And the the more we can do that intentionally, where we even listen to our breathing, the, the better that tone is going to get. So quick review, we have new understandings of human behavior and Having more understanding of the vagus nerve is a huge component of that. It brings us more into this embodied cognition model where we understand that our body and senses are actually processing information and they're influencing what gets sent to our brain. We also have, it's a feedback system where we have sensory information being 
brought up to our brain, signal to our brain, and then our brain processing and interpreting, evaluating that and sending information back down to our internal organs as part of our autonomic nervous system. And that this, this vagus nerve also controls these really important muscles for vocalization, for listening, for eye gaze, for facial expression. And all of that is also related to the nerves that are going into our, to regulate our internal organs. So this vagus nerve and vagal tone is related not just to our autonomic nervous system of regulating, you know, our digestion and things like that, but also to social behaviors. And three things to understand when we're teaching or leading is that people are going to have different levels of this vagal tone and it's going to be related to different things in their physiology and also in their environment. So two things we can do to help with that is to understand the difference between emotions and feelings. Emotions are our verbal interpretation of what's happening and they're not necessarily that accurate of messages and it can be more helpful to go into the internal, our physiological sensations of of what's happening in our internal state to bring us back into the present moment, which can be one of the most helpful things for people, especially if they do have vagal tone issues, vagal circuit issues, bring them back into the, the present moment. And lastly, that taking time to deliberately enhance our vagal tone can be very helpful for us, for our physical health, but for our, you know, well-being, our emotional well-being. And getting more in touch with that, with those interoceptive abilities, can also help us model for other people. Because the better we are getting in touch with those sensations and being able to describe them, the better we can get at showing other people how to do that. So that wraps up episode five. I hope that you are enjoying learning about the vagus nerve. Um, I think it's so incredibly important. And again, if you have any questions, please let me know. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. If you love the brain as much as I do, and you want to get some step-by-step strategies on how to teach growth mindset from a neuroscience perspective, as well as handouts, reflection questions, and even pre-packaged presentations to show to staff or students, then check out my mindset starter kit. It's at stephaniefayfrank.com slash training. And on that page, you'll also see my upcoming events, as well as my Institute for Mindset Resilience and Innovation training, the IMRI, which is starting in May. So if that sounds interesting to you, I hope you check it out. Again, it's at stephaniefayfrank.com slash training.